Built the perfect ballpark, the huge crowd arrived, the President of the United States, the weather was perfect. We love this place. It was all set that I was going to pitch opening day at Camden Yard. Rick Sutcliffe, this his eighth opening day assignment. I got to go back a little bit and talk about how it all came about. In 1979, when I was fortunate to be the rookie of the year, a big part of that was my catcher. For the most part, was a guy named Johnny Oates. When I got traded to the Chicago Cubs in '84, the bullpen catcher for the Chicago Cubs was again Johnny Oates. Uh, I didn't go on a scouting report in '84 that the Cubs had. I went on what Johnny told me, and as a lot of people know, I, I went on to to win the Cy Young Award. And all of a sudden, in 1992, the Cubs didn't want me. I come off of shoulder surgery. I get a call from none other than Johnny Oates. He's the manager of the Baltimore Orioles. He said, I need you to come to Baltimore. I want to meet with you. Well, I was happy to go there. I flew in with my agent. I knew what he was going to talk about. I was at the end of my career. I, I really didn't need to be going to the American League East where the designated hitter was there. Um, I was older. It just didn't seem like the right fit. But as we get to the ballpark, Johnny leads Larry Lucchino and everybody else, my agent, back, and he walks me out to the mound at Camden Yard. And he said, I want you to look around. And I'm looking around, and I'm seeing how beautiful it is. I'm seeing a lot of things that remind you of, of Fenway and, and Wrigley and, and a lot of the great stadiums of, of, of baseball history. And Johnny goes, you're going to throw the first pitch ever in this ballpark. He goes, you know this place is going to be packed. And you know the people in the seats here know the game of baseball. You're going to love it. The goosebumps that I got, like, determined to me that I knew what I was going to do. I didn't know what kind of a year I was going to have, but I knew in 1992 I was going to be a Baltimore Oriole. The 1992 season is now officially underway. That was kind of the deciding factor. Chris Hoyles. Here comes the 1-0 delivery. Hoyle swings and he sends it to left center field. The ball headed for the open spaces. Lofton, he dies. He can't get it. It lands on the warning track and then bounces over the wall. Orioles ahead, one to nothing. Yeah, Billy Ripken with the, the sacrifice. Oh. There's a pitch of squeeze. It's bunted. It's a beauty. They've done it. Billy has done it. And on the suicide, the Orioles have taken a two to nothing lead. We always talk about the Oriole way when you talk about Baltimore. And a lot of that came from Earl Weaver and it came from Cal Ripken Sr. But one thing I remembered about Baltimore that was different, we took infield every single night. And I asked Johnny Oates one time, I go, why are we doing this? He goes, because Cal insists on it. And as I thought about it, I don't know why in this day and age people don't take infield. You know, everybody takes batting practice and there's like an hour and a half where nothing goes on. Cal always felt like you had to stay in the flow. You had to build everything up towards being the best you could be at the time the game started. It's important as far as the team being together and get something out of that time. That team played outstanding defense. When you got Billy and Cal up the middle, you're going to turn the double play when you get that ground ball. Our outfield defense was outstanding. It came to fruition on opening day. I was just going to fill the strike zone up with whatever I had that I could throw over at that certain time and just hope that our defense would come through uh, with the plays that we needed. What a day this has been. An historic occasion. Rick Sutcliffe, the veteran right-hander, trying to show the way for the Orioles. 
in the ninth inning. The Orioles a two to nothing lead. I knew when when I went out there for the ninth inning. I I knew what was going on. Just in case, Greg Olson warming up in the Orioles bullpen. I knew we had an outstanding closer. I knew if anybody got out on base that that was going to be it. Uh, my goal was to keep that from happening. And the crowd at Oriole Park at Camden Yard on his feet. Sutcliffe, one out away. He's one strike away. Let me tell you a story, and this is true. I threw the clincher when the Cubs, they hadn't been to playoffs in 40 years. And as I took the mound for the ninth inning that day uh, in 1984, Jody Davis told me, he said, hey, that last out, the third out in the ninth inning, I want that ball on my glove. Well, I knew what he meant. I knew he wanted me to strike the last guy out. I had an 0-2 count that day on, believe it or not, Joe Orsolak. He was with Pittsburgh then, 1984. I knew the umpire and I knew the crowd was into it. Jody Davis, my catcher, set up about that far outside. I hit his glove, and before the ball hit the glove, the home plate umpire had his right arm in the air. Yeah, you know, he knew what the crowd wanted. He knew the importance of that game. Well, I flash back to what happened in 84 for that last pitch in 1992. I got Sorrento up there. He's got power. If anybody gets on, I'm out of the game. Greg Olson's in. I go, oh, let's see if I can go that far outside of home <laughs> and get this thing over with. Sutcliffe peers in, says yes, into his motion. I don't remember the home plate umpire. Sorrento takes the first right He's a tie yeah. And we all went home happy. Sutcliffe, what a performance. What a performance. Goes all the way. He gives up only five hits. Rick Sutcliffe's day here at Camden Yard. Well, it sure is. I don't know how you could have been any better than Sutcliffe today. Oriole Park at Camden Yards has been inaugurated. one more time set, and here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez down, the fastball swung on at the deep center field, Bernie Williams goes back, and it is, get out the line, grab it, the mustard this time, grab off, it is a grand salami, and the Mariners lead it 10-6, to I don't believe it! From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, seals down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where... We collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, Seamheads? What's juicy? 
Jake Robinson back in the saddle. I got your hook up. Holler if you hear me. Want to thank all of you for stopping by this week to build some sandcastles in my little sandbox here at BKP this week as we continue to traverse through space and baseball time. Highlighting the moments and personalities that have been woven into the game and the fabric of America. And now, the world, as the sport continues to grow on the international stage. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. Or, you can check out my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. To listen to this or any of the other shows I got. I will never charge you for the baseball content. I told out to you freaks. No Patreon. No pay-to-play crowdsourcing. I appreciate anyone who takes the time out of their 24-hour day to celebrate the rich history of baseball with me. Just hook a good brother up with shares, downloads, listens, and follows. Share that with your little seamhead friends there. And I'll be here every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I take this role seriously, as it is truly my mission in life, ordained by the higher power to spread the gospel of baseball around the globe. And I believe we all have a purpose in life. And look, we all have our flaws, right? I mean, look at me. I got a face made for pods. Only a mother can love this face, and I ain't so sure my own loves mine. So, look. I was a big disappointment there. I got the personality of a dead moth in my private life. I lived like this self-imposed hermit of a life. I've always been awkward in social gatherings of more than four people. So, I'm here to tell you, we all got flaws. But all of us good brothers and sisters have a purpose. And my purpose, clearly, is to leave something behind to uh, the one thing in my life that has been a constant love affair since I can remember. The game of baseball. Through all my personal flaws that I just mentioned, I do have a powerful weapon in my arsenal. I got a voice, and I got a platform. And I'm honored to share both of these things with you. Uh, It may not be your classic baseball voice. It may be layered at times in my thick West Balmer accent and swagger. And certainly, there are better in broadcasting than me, but it's what my higher power gave me to work with on this mission, and I'm going to work with what I got and make it work. I'm highly motivated and driven to accomplish these goals, as Backwards K-Pod is now listened to in 25 countries around the globe. So, going back, in order to spread the gospel of baseball, which is the mission of PKP, I'm never going to charge you for the content. Uh, next to my daughter, this is my true love in life. There is nothing I love more than covering the tradition of this sport with you fine folks. I hope you can feel that in these presentations that I give to you. I consider myself a baseball historian, but I'm still at this advanced age uh, very much so a student of the game as well. So if you really want to help me in this endeavor, here's what you do. Please rate and review me. I ain't scared. If you're on any of these platforms that give you the ability to rate and review, please do so as you see fit. Apple, Spotify, wherever. It's it's real hard to get these rate and reviews. Many people listen but don't necessarily leave a review. And, and I get it, but they really, you know, help me out. They help me stay relevant in the search engines as well as my bottom line of putting some food on my family's uh, dinner table here. I want to thank everyone for the kind messages. Uh, last week's topic, Hannes Wagner. And 
ain't even sparked a hell of a trivia question on my Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook group page. Uh, I got a message from Adam in Baltimore that said basically uh, he loved learning about Hannes from the show. And he began thinking about Wagner's incredible 1908 season in which some historians, Bill James in particular, he consider, considers it to be the greatest single season statistically by any baseball player not named Barry Bonds. And, and I would like to enter Shohei Otani's name into that conversation as well at this point. Well, Adam, who is our group trivia master, he found 11 players, including Hollis Wagner, who led the league in 10 or more offensive categories in a single season per baseball reference. Those players were as followed. Hottest Wagner, Ted Williams, Carl Yastrzemski, Stan Musel, Rogers Hornsby, Babe Ruth, Mike Schmidt, Ty Cobb, Napoleon Lajaway, Jim Rice, and Ducky Joe Medwick from the Gas Out Gang uh, Cardinals. And first of all, thank you for your kind words, Adam, and I love that that show inspired you to dig into this anomaly, number one. Um, what Hannes did in 08 has actually been done 10 other times. So that's number one. That blew me away, first of all. And I mean, that in itself is prodigious. Number two, uh, what a collection of names, right? Literally, the best of the best. But number three, what about the names that ain't there? The studs who couldn't do it. The Garrix, the Mantles, the Maggios. Uh, no, no Ricky Henderson, no Bonds, Griffey, Trout, Albert. Not even Aaron Judge and his amazing 2022 season last year could lay claim to owning 10 or more offensive categories in a season. It really gives you context of how truly incredible that Hannes Wagner was in 1908. And also, how ridiculously hard it is to have that kind of offensive attack over the full span of a season. So, again, thank you very much, Adam, for uh, expanding the context of uh, how incredible that year was for the Flying Dutchman. And that's my dude, Adam, living in the charm, transplant from filthy, teacher. Educating young Baltimore minds. God bless you and your profession, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, bro. And Adam, I, you know, we, we know each other pretty well. We, well, even though we've never met, we've shared emails, phone calls, and baseball theory through the years. And even though he's this typical Phillies, you know, fanatic, well, maybe not physical, uh, typical. You, you won't see this dude ever throw snowballs at Santa. Uh, he's an educator, for Christ's sake. But he does have an appreciation uh, for this week's topic, as he often takes his kids to the games. And he even got to rub elbows a little bit with Orioles GM Mike Elias at a game last year. So, thanks for always supporting me, Adam. And I think you will appreciate this week's topic as well. Uh, I got more ground to cover today than Willie Mays out in center field to pull the ground. So I'm ready to get this train rolling. I see the catcher is coming down. The infield is now throwing that rock around the infield. Let's get you seam heads off the platform as I call all aboard. And we set our time and destination to my hometown, Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland, 1992. As this week... I will be doing a deep dive case study on the stadium that changed everything. And that's Orioles Park at Camden Yard. And truth be told, 
I gotta be honest, I'm excited to do this week's show. As most of you know, I'm born and I'm a born and raised Baltimorean. I love my birds of a feather, both ravens and orioles alike. Uh, I do not bombard this show with a lot of Orioles shows. I try my hardest to represent all the MLB teams and keep it from being Orioles-centric. In fact, if you look at my catalog, I've only done three Orioles shows before this one. So, whenever the schedule comes around to the Orioles, it does get my creative juices flowing. Uh, the only two teams that I haven't really covered here at BKP are the modern-day Nationals and the Tampa Bay Rays. And that's not by design or some type of nefarious plot against these clubs. It's just they have such a young history that we're still in the very early stages of those two franchises telling their story. Um, but here, I have intimate knowledge of this incredible baseball structure built in Baltimore. As I literally saw her conception, her birth, and her growth right before my very own eyes. And as this hollowed Orioles Cathedral was being built, I would often think of the question that William Shakespeare ponders in his play Tempest when he wrote, What's past is prologue, meaning that history sets the context for the present and the future. Orioles Park and Camden Yards would fit the bill of this line as she would reach back through time and incorporate all the things that made baseball special in the jewel box era of baseball stadiums. And by doing so, she set the stage for all the future cribs after her, forever changing the way that we consume baseball as fans. For us to go forward in the Oriole Park at Camden Yard story, we need to go back to her influences. So in 1908, Jack Norwood, Norworth, he writes, take me out to the ball game. The next year, Shine Park opened in Filthy, a stadium I did a show on last year. It's in the archives if you want to hear it. By 1923, Forbes Field, Comiskey Park, Fenway Park, League Park, Griffith Stadium, Polo Grounds, Crosley, Tiger Stadium, Abbott's, Wrigley, Braggersfield, Sportsman Park, Yankee Stadium. All those stadiums would take root in the country. And they were forever being planted in the baseball conscience of fans. And if you listen to any of these stadium shows, especially the old cribs like Fenway, Wrigley, Shine, Crossley, Polo, you may remember me using the term jewel box stadiums. And this is to categorize an era in stadium construction when these powerful buildings would rise from the grids of urban streets, each one fitting to its particular finite turf, creating at times, you know, scenic neighborhood surroundings, as well as odd, and, you know, in Polo Ground's case, uh, these aberrant, exaggerated angles on the field of play. These cribs back then, they also had steel rather than uh, concrete trusses, brick facades, natural grass. And because of these city blocks that they would fit these stadiums in, they often had asymmetrical playing surfaces. Unlike, say, Dodger Stadium, which is completely symmetrical, meaning if I could fold Dodger Stadium in half, the left side of the field will completely match the right side for a perfect fold. In Flatbush, 
Abbott's Field, it played like a pinball machine. In Forbes, the outfield was littered with extra base hits. In Crosley, it played almost like a Little League field with all their quirks and sloped outfield warning track. It was truly, truly the golden age of baseball stadium construction where the neighborhoods had a connection to the fans and these unconventional playing fields. Now, these beautiful ballpark constructions would continue till about 1950. And there was a shift from the magnificent jewel box cribs to, to now these multi-purpose monstrosities and eventually the uninspired cookie cutters. And for years, it was almost as if stadium engineers and builders were intent on fusing the DNA of baseball's diamond play with football's rectangular surface. So, as the multi-purpose monstrosities and these cookie cutters multiplied, the intimacy and the individuality of baseball stadiums became sterile. And the baseball-only stadium almost became a distant memory. In fact, people scoffed at the notion of a baseball-only stadium. Some felt it to be an ostentatious vision of careless money management when the multi-purpose stadium can kill two sports birds with one stone. And this line of thinking would be reconsidered in 1973 when the Kansas City Royals built a baseball-only stadium across the street from Arrowhead Stadium, home of the now NFL champion Kansas City Chiefs. It was truly a forward progressive model that opened eyes throughout the league, and it gave a glimpse of what was to come. And look, folks, I covered the construction of Calpin Stadium and and the uh, Harry Truman Sports Complex in Kansas City. If you haven't heard that show yet, it's in the archives. You can find it on all pod platforms. Or go on over to my website, DiamondSnakeJake.Poppy.com to hear that or any of the other stadium shows I got in that vault of archives over there. Now, many people fell in love with uh, KC's two-sport approach, but no one acted on the concept for years. Many cities looking for new stadium deals worried mostly about the price tag of the two stadiums for different growth, uh, different sports. In 1983, a small group of Kansas City architects, uh, the same ones that built Kaufman, they huddled up and they formed the Kansas City firm of Helmuth, Obata, and Casabon, which in time became the world-renowned HOK Sport. At first, just the notion of an architectural firm only devoted to sports, you know, sports building, sports architecture, it was, well, it was laughable back then. However, not many people were laughing when they built a 19,500-seat triple eight. Baseball Stadium in downtown Buffalo, New York in 1989 to uh, much fanfare and critical acclaim. And behind the scenes in 1989, HOK had already begun to design Orioles Park at Camden Yard, which, which would open in 1992 at a cost of $110 million. $110 million in 1992 is worth about... Let me see, $235 million 
in the 2023 economy. The previous home of the Orioles was the world's largest outdoor insane asylum, Memorial Stadium, which stood northwest Baltimore on 33rd Street. She was a multi-purpose gal, but not a cookie cutter. And if you look down on her from top down, the open, bold stadium, it resembled a horseshoe, which fit into their other tenants' hands, the Baltimore Colts football team. There was really nothing fancy about her on the inside. You know, you had some tomato plants out in the uh, bullpen area out there that Earl Weaver and Cal Ripken Sr. used to grow. But there was really nothing fancy about her on the inside other than the fact that, you know, it had beautiful natural grass and it had incredible acoustics as that bad boy would get loud. She would literally shake. Uh, She had very little in common with, like, the vet in Philly, or the Three Rivers in Pittsburgh, she was more comparable to, say, uh, Cleveland's municipal field, uh, where the Indians played. And I told you, it was during her construction that I would fall in love with Camden. And during this construction, that I would always mumble those Shakespearean words to myself, what's past is prologue. And that is because of the fact that the success of Camden Yards was facilitated three years before Rick Sutcliffe even made that first pitch that he talked about at the top of the show. For one thing, gone were the days of gridlock traffic jams after ball games. I mean, I lived 35 minutes from Memorial Stadium, and it would take me almost two hours to get home after games. It was so bad that my mom often prohibited me from going to night games during the school year because I wouldn't get home sometimes till like 1, 2 in the morning. And with the heart of down the downtown location for Camden Yards, the stadium was now accessible by a whole convoy of MTA buses. The downtown parking was more spread out than Memorial Stadium with quick access to flowing streets and nearby beltways to take you to Baltimore's surrounding counties, as well as uh, D.C. Commuter, commuters trying to get back to the district. There was... Also, a brand new light rail train system under construction that would literally uh, stop at the old Camden Railroad. It goes through Baltimore, runs through Baltimore, and it would connect Baltimore County to Anne Arundel County. And with a market that has been in kind of a steady decline in population since the 1970s, we're talking about Baltimore, it is imperative to have the baseball team and stadium linked to the surrounding counties. Now, the new light rail system was also joined by a metro train system as well, the Camden Line, that runs from Baltimore to Washington, D.C. Now, of course, in 1992, I, I would have never imagined that the district would be given a third chance at a baseball team a few years later, but they were, and now that Metro line uh, has become largely irrelevant for Orioles games, although it is still used frequently for workers and visitors who commute from D.C. to the Charm or vice versa. So, first and foremost, it was easy to see that this Camden Yards model is going to be much, much more accessible the Memorial Stadium. And the second most notable thing before its completion was 
you know, Camby Yards is actually around things. As a kid at Memorial Stadium after the game, you and your crew might be like, fuck it, the traffic's awful. Let's go hang out until it dies down. So you'd have to walk down to Greenmount Avenue, about six blocks down 33rd. Well, None of us were of age, so the bars were out of the question. And look, real talk, folks. And, you know, you don't want to be drifting around on Greenmount Avenue back in the 80s looking like a bunch of Canesville boys who don't belong. Short Johns Hopkins University is down there. The chicks are really hot and smart. But, you know, we're teenagers. We got no shot with these broads. So there was never anything to do as teenagers after an Oreo game. We usually did the same shit. We'd walk to Greenmount Avenue, check out the landscape, and walk right back to the car. Now, we're going to have a stadium just blocks from the Baltimore Inn Harbor. Not to mention, two blocks west is the Babe Ruth House on Emory Street. And then my mind would wander and think about, you know, Babe fucking Ruth. A name that continuously runs through a Baltimore baseball fan's mind when you're growing up. And while he is a Yankees legend, the incorrigible boy is from the streets of West Baltimore, just like me. From 1906 to 1912, his father would own and operate a bar, Ruth's Cafe, that was on the corner of Conway Street and Little Packer, which is now center field at Camden Yards. Not only did the Ruth family own a bar where center field currently is, but... Babe's father, George Sr., would ostensibly be murdered in Centerfield when a brawl spilled out in the bar, then it spilled out into the in, out in front of the bar, and Babe's father would never recover from banging his head on the street. And as a kid, I was well versed on the roof legend. I couldn't help thinking that his connection to this new stadium was anything short of divinity at work. And again, I say, what's past is prologue. Another reason for my optimism with Camden Yards was where it happened. There had been a lot of mediocre years at Camden Yards, a fact for which there is no debate. Five playoff appearances since Oriole Park opened 31 years ago. Uh, you know, we have been to the ALCS three of those times. And throughout the Orioles' tenure at Orioles Park, we've really become a shell of ourselves as baseball fans as well. I know some people don't want to hear that, but it's true. Last year, that team was in the postseason hunt until the last few weeks. But they struggled to draw more than twelve grand on many nights. It was embarrassing as an Orioles fan in South Carolina to watch it. And all I hear is excuses. And if another person whines about crime, I'm going to throw you out the fucking window. The crime is so bad. I, I get it. But the Ravens game is always filled to the rafter. So just stop. There is no safer place to be in the city of Baltimore than at the Inner Harbor or at the stadiums during a game. It's fact. The data bears that out. You know, you're just making stupid presumptions and excuses. But anyway, I digress. Going into the 90s, there were very few baseball cities that had a greater baseball heritage. After losing the Colts to Indianapolis, who literally got caught trying to sneak out of the city in the middle of a blizzard. 
Few people knew better the need for a field to provide sustenance to a community that was crippled by the fucking cults. In 1892, the Orioles joined the National League, winning league pennants in 1894, 1895, and 1896. They were led by their famous quartet of Wee Willie Healer, Hugh Jennings, John McGraw, and Wilbert Robinson. I'm going to tell you right now, those four right there, they're, they're probably the biggest cheaters in the history of baseball. You want to talk about dudes that cheated? Go Google those names right there. You know, Wee Willie Keeler, he used to, uh, you know, plane his bats down so he'd be flat on one side so he could hit those uh, Baltimore chops. He invented that shit. The catcher, Wilbur Robinson, he would put stones in batters' uh, cleats when they weren't looking. Bunch of cheaters. Cheaters. I love those dudes, though. <laughs> in 1901, the Orioles joined the American League as a charter member. They then moved to New York, changed their name to the Highlanders, and would eventually become the Yankees. The Orioles would then join the International League for the next half century or so. In 1944, Orioles Park, located on 29th and Greenmount, and burned to the ground. Soon thereafter, the International League birds would set up camp at Memorial Stadium, which is pretty much right around the corner. Above Memorial Stadium, there was a eulogy to veterans of war that read, Time will not dim the glory of your deeds. And you may hear me say this often when I give a eulogy here to a ball player who dies, like last week with Tim McCarver, and a couple weeks back with Gaylord Perry. I always end the eulogy with rest in peace, Godspeed, and time will not dim the glory of your deeds. It comes from that huge facade I grew up staring at on the outside of Memorial Stadium as a kid. In 1953, the Colts emigrated from Dallas to Baltimore, which signaled a change in Baltimore's fandom that still exists today. With the NFL now king in Baltimore, the International League Orioles were being phased out, and Baltimore was no longer accepting of minor league teams. It's time for Baltimore to go big. After Anheuser-Busch Brewing Company brought the cards in 1953, Browns owner Bill Veck, unable to get an okay to move to Baltimore, sold the team to a syndicate who then moved them there. The first voice of the Baltimore Orioles was Hall of Famer Ernie Harwell from 1954 to 1959. I know a lot of people outside of Baltimore did not even know that. Uh, he is mostly known at, with his tenure as... With the Detroit Tigers, and uh, Flowers got something to say about that. She she's a huge Ernie Harwell fan. That's right. <laughs> she's dreaming away. Ernie finally remembers uh, the parade of Baltimore. Uh, he threw for their new team, and he said it was a stirring welcome to Baltimore. The new team was shocked to see the attendance go from 300,000 a year the year before in St. Louis to 1.1 million in Baltimore for that inaugural 1954 season. The community, the team, and the fans, they grew together in synergy under the watchful eye of Paul Richards in the front office led by Harry Dalton. The Orioles would have tremendous success with Memorial Stadium being the epicenter of it all. From 1966 to 1983, the Orioles won more games than anyone during that span. But it was 1979 when the Orioles took over, and for one summer, they made Charm City a baseball town. Their new radio flagship channel, 1300 WFBRAM, they began marketing Orioles magic 
with the gas crisis going on, as well as instability in Iran with the American hostages. Uh, Baltimore Rods, we went to a lot of inexpensive baseball games that year, or we listened to almost every one of them. Uh, you know, they were just so red hot in 1979. Uh, in August of 79, Edward Bennett Williams, a D.C. lawyer, which the only thing most Baltimoreans loathe is someone from D.C. And the only thing they love more than that is a D.C. lawyer. And the only thing they love more than a D.C. lawyer is a D.C. lawyer who bought Baltimore sports team. And there's a lot of eggs around, you know, this sale as no one in the city trusts this dude. And Edward Bennett Williams, he, he told him, you know, look, it depends on attendance, whether the team would move. And thankfully, that team in 79 was white hot. They went to the World Series that year. And talk of moving the Orioles was virtually never heard of again until, well, 2023, as the Orioles still have not signed a lease that is soon, you know, to expire. In 1984, when that cocksucker Bob Ursay, may he rot in chaos, committed grand larceny and treason by stealing the Colts for those Hoosers up in Indy. It, it shocked the state of Maryland and the Maryland Stadium Authority so bad that they began to immediately take steps to make sure they would not lose the Orioles over a new stadium situation. The Colts had owned this town until 1979, but between a pathetic drunkard for an owner, bad coaches like Frank Cush, an outdated football field and shitty attendance, as well as awful play, the fans of the city had weathered the storm. But in 1983, when future Hall of Famer John Elway is drafted number one by the Colts, and he refuses to play for morons like Ursay, or a hard-ass drill sergeant of a coach in Frank Cush, the curtain on the Baltimore Colts era was drawn. At its best, Memorial Stadium paled like a redhead with freckles. While with the Colts gone, like the traitors, bitches they will always be. The city of Baltimore were now according the Orioles with a newfound respect and love. A new ballpark was to go up and it would be owned and operated by the Maryland Stadium Authority. From the outset, the message was clear coming from the Chesapeake Bay natives as well as the Orioles. Set the new standard in baseball stadiums. Point blank. And we will do everything to reward and keep our loyal Orioles here in the charm. And Memorial Stadium, it was too old. Its infrastructure too fragile to endure Major League renovations. Some people wanted the old horseshit, multi-purpose football, baseball plot. And the Orioles from day one were 100% adamantly opposed to that. So, with the NFL gone, the Orioles were not willing to assume responsibility for getting another football team and building a stadium that would acquiesce to an NFL team. They were not going to let the NFL force them to half-step on their stadium visions. The Orioles brass, led by Larry Lachino, uh, made a note that the most successful teams in the MLB at that time had baseball-only facilities. Lucchino himself, he grew up in Pittsburgh as a Pirates fan, and he never forgot the impact and damage done to the Pirates brand when they moved into Three Rivers. 
the two most dominant childhood memories for Lakina as a Pirates fan was being a 15-year-old second baseman for the Pittsburgh City High title-winning baseball team. He's listening to his hero, Bill Mazeroski, drop walk-off dong versus the Yankees to clinch the 1960 World Series. And he never forgot how the Pirates had diminished their value by leaving Forbes Field for three rivers. By sacrificing this classic park, the Buccos had settled for uh, vanilla, symmetrical dimensions, astroturf, dreary sightlines, and stands where, you know, you needed binoculars and a ham radio to simply follow the action on the field. And he remembered how at Forbes, you could practically reach out and grab Clemente's hat from his seats if you wanted to do so. Now, I wouldn't recommend you try that. By contrast, moving to Three Rivers in 1970, it opened the team up to Fograss, a huge, almost overwhelming upper deck, as well as Steelers football body snatching of the Pirates' soul, much like the Ravens have done in many ways to the Orioles today. The Pirates almost left the Berg in the mid-80s. When their 70s dominance began dwindling away in the rearview mirror, and it got to the point where they almost no longer fit into the city's emotional baggage. Lucchino, the Princeton University, Yale Law School graduate, was a member of Edward Bennett Williams Law Firm in D.C. He was handpicked by EBW to chart Memorial Stadium's successor. He had learned from watching his Pirates grow up that Only by going back to the future could baseball save itself. Williams, who was now dying of cancer, had always been a Red Sox fan growing up, and all that he asked for from Larry was a crib that could rival Fenway Park. Thankfully, HOK was looking to do something outside the box as well. They had originally figured that they would be able to let it fly in South Chicago. They pictured a new Comiskey Park with a nod to old Chicago architecture that dominates that city landscape and a phenomenal view from center field with the Sears Tower in the background while still paying retro homage to the classic that was the original Comiskey. Unfortunately, and I covered this in the Guaranteed Rate Park Shell, White Sox owner Jay Reinsdorf was way too concerned about costs to let HOK do anything special on that project. He didn't even want the Sears Tower in the background because he feared all the home runs that might be hit in that White Sox ball yard due to the prevailing winds. I mean, he does have a point. Who wants to see a bunch of home runs hit into the Chicago skyline that features one of the world's tallest buildings? Are you kidding me? Who wants to see that? He was a penny-pinching destroyer of creativity, and that stadium paid the price for his lack of vision. Period. When the new Kaminsky opened in 1991, most of the baseball world was accepting, but at Baltimore, we're laughing our asses off. We're now a year away from uh, opening in 1992, uh, we're at 91 right now, and I'll take what the Orioles have right now over the White Sox finished product. That stadium was homogeneously bland. It lacked flavor. Let's call it tofu. It just kind of incorporates whatever you put inside that fucker. And Lakino, he didn't want anything to do with that. He wanted something distinctive, something traditionally old but modern. Lakino had a vision of what he wanted. 
But he just didn't know where he's going to put it. He and former Baltimore Mayor William Donald Schaefer, they wanted it somewhere downtown uh, to drive commerce. They looked at over two dozen locations in and around Baltimore, and they even reached out to the public for our input. The prevailing thought was if the stadium was constructed downtown, people could make a day of their baseball experience. And I explained to you earlier that that wasn't the case on Old 33rd if you're a kid. HOK kept referring back to Buffalo's AAA pilot field and how it uh, gridded out with the city's landscape. Bison owner Bob Ritz said, uh, instead of building generically, HOK likes to begin with the city's landscape and architecture and build around that. After years of debate over form, locale, stadium name, Orioles Park and Camden Yards were beginning to take shape on paper. But while the yard was being conceived, the club was in near comatose stages on the field. In 1986, the Orioles finished in last place in the American League East. In 1988, they would lose the first 21 games of the season. And even though, as a fan, I, 1988 was akin to, uh, you know, like this dark Groundhog Day movie where at the end of the day, I, I, I got to pull my pants down and bend over a barrel and let... Pucks and Tony Phil have his way with me. But some great news did come out of that awful season. On May 2nd, 1988, before a crowd of 50,402 diehard Oriole fans rooting for their beloved 1-23 last place Orioles, Memorial Stadium swayed from the boisterous reaction of the announcement by Mayor Schaefer that Edward Bennett Williams had signed a 15-year lease for a new crib to be built at Camden Yards. The stadium will be built in time for the 1992 season, and it would sit on an 85-acre plot of land that stands near the historic Camden Yards railroad station um, of old and two blocks east from the Babe Ruth House. On August 13th, 1988, Edward Bennett Williams dies of cancer, and it was now totally on Lucchino to see this project to fruition. He would insistently uh, press HOK for more personality, more quirks, more crazy angles. He would often ask out loud, why can't stadiums have more modern amenities and idiosyncrasies? Larry had been named vice president. Uh, the team a year earlier, and now with Williams gone, he was on his way to becoming the owner, so he realized his legacy here is at stake. Larry would often say, in the Baltimore media at that time, when this park is done, everyone is going to want one, and he was 100% spot on there. It took essentially 33 months from the time of raising buildings on the stadium site until its first pitch on opening day on April 6, 1992. On February 6, 1990, construction began after eight months of demolition at the site, and as an outsider watching this magnificent, magnificent one-in-a-million structure take shape day in and day out, it seems as though everything is going smooth, but 
There is one problem, and it was kind of getting bigger as construction moved on. What the hell are we going to name this thing? And side note here, I'm kind of wacky when it comes to stadium names. I'm anti-corporate naming rights thrown on a building. If you got a corporate name slapped on the side of your retro stadium, your retro stadium that is supposed to magnify the game on the way what, what once was, then it automatically loses points in my eyes. One thing the Angelos family has done right is not prostitute themselves and that stadium name out to the highest corporate dollar. But I digress. Larry Lachino liked the, the name Orioles Park as a nod to the structure that burned down in the corner of Green Mountain 29th Street. Mayor Schaefer liked the name Camden Yards, and that was the camp I was in. I love the fact that for the first time in my life, baseball men are telling me this isn't going to be a stadium. This is going to be a ballpark or a ball yard. The word baseball stadium became persona non grata in Baltimore in the early 90s. Virtually erased from my vernacular seemingly overnight. No one in my inner circle said that word stadium again until the Ravens came to town in 96. Memorial was a stadium where they played football and other sports. Camden it's going to be a ballpark. It's a yard. On October 3rd, 1991, on the eve of Memorial Stadium's last Oriole game, a compromise was struck, and it was announced the new name of the ballpark was going to be Orioles Park at Camden Yards, which I thought was fair. It was a nod to both of these men who laid the groundwork for the city, team, and fans. And the last game of Memorial Stadium, it ended with Calvin Jr. grounding into a season and stadium-closing double play. After the contest uh, and stadium-closing festivities, which, whoa, I mean, it's something I'll never get, forget. I, I really, really won't. Um... Current and former Orioles began taking the field one by one with no introduction from the PA. And they just come out of the dugout one after the other and they ran to their positions. It's something I will never forget. All those Orioles, all those years, a celebration that would only happen in Baltimore. We, 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 we got our own way about things. Look at Cal's celebration at Breaking Loose Street. We, we, we're, we're just built different in Baltimore. We're very tribal by nature. We have this Napoleon complex living in the shadow of D.C., Filthy, New York, even Boston. We scream, oh, during the national anthem. And we don't give a fuck what any of you think about it. I mean, it's even crazier when you scream "oh" outside of the charm. I get looks all the time. My, my whoever my company is with me, they, they they might sink in their chair and lower their hat over their eyes. I don't give a fuck. I'm Baltimore. I'm built different. That last game at Memorial Stadium, watching all these current and former Orioles run out to their positions, the stadium was so quiet. You you could have heard Earl drop an f bomb. There were no cheers, but let me tell you, there was a river of tears. And again, I think of the old Billy Shakespeare quote, What's past is but a prologue.
So after the closing ceremonies, the groundskeeping crew, they dug up home plate. They had it chauffeured by limo to her new home at 333 West Camden Street. On April 4th, 1992, yours truly, your fearless leader, Jake the Snake Robinson, became the very first person in the history of Oriole Park at Camden Yards to be arrested at the brand new ballpark. Totally true story. Some of you may have heard it. For those of you that haven't, here's the gist of it. Very first game at Camden was an exhibition game versus the Mets. My friend Dan and I, we went to the game to check out the new stadium. And we also wanted to see Eddie Murray return to Baltimore for the first time since he was traded in uh, 85. And I don't remember much about that game. I know Cal drove in a rib or two. I remember thinking, you know, Sagi might give me some hope this year. I remember not being impressed with Sam Horn, who people were always saying would be the first to hit a ball up the fucking warehouse. I can remember thinking, these people were fucking nuts. Horn is a stiff. And I remember cheering for Eddie, his first at bat. That, that's about it. That's all I remember about that game. Well, after the game, Dan and I, we hit the re- Italian restaurant across the street. I ordered shrimp and scallop scampi. He got the lasagna. We're sitting in the outside eating area of the restaurant. We can see the stadium from where we're sitting. It's literally two blocks in front of us as we eat. And we began drinking Peronis, Italian beer, and we're pounding them down, one after the other. I mean, you know, five, six, maybe 14 or so, I don't know. We decided we're going to walk over to the park once again. So when we get there, there are people in the stands doing blow, using blowers to clean it out, and the gates are wide open. So I'm like, hey, Dan, I know I'm drunk, but yeah, this Oriole gate, it's open. Seems like an invitation for us to come in. And, you know, look, Dan, he can't hold his liquor nearly as good as me, so he agrees with me. We walk in, and I don't know, somehow, next thing I know, we're on the field. And only one game has ever been played on this field, ever. And here we are standing on it. Uh, What's it like standing on the field at Camden Yards? Well, thank you for asking, and I'll tell you. It's amazing. It's just how I imagine, you know, if I were to touch God's breast. It must feel so perfect Absolutely perfect. In fact, I gotta admit, I've never stood on the surface of something man-made that felt so freaking level in my life. There are no imperfections on the Camden Yards playing service. I can attest to that. So, as I'm kind of playing in the dirt where Cal was standing earlier, a police officer walks up to me and he asks what I'm doing. And whatever my answer was, it wasn't what he was looking for. So he threw the handcuffs on me and my boy. And 1992 was before Central Booking Unit was completed, built. So that means, you know, me and Dano, we spent 16 hours in East Baltimore Cherry Hill District. As, you know, we entered the police station. The cops in the the police station, they gave us a standing ovation. They told us we were the very first people to be locked up in the stadium. They were wondering when it was going to happen. And it just... Happened to be us. The charges were put on a stent docket, meaning as long as I kept my nose clean, uh, this would never be brought up again for like four years or something. Uh, and that's kind of what happened. Uh, what you say? Was it worth it, you asked? Okay, thank you for the question. And hell yes, it was totally worth it. The first person arrested at Camden Yards is an honor. And no one can ever take that from me. The first, baby. I Look, let me tell you something. I always knew as a kid I would be the first at something. I just never knew it would be so freaking epic. On April 6, 1992, there was a dynamic 
paradigm shift that would change forever how baseball fans would consume the game live. The baseball world was literally flipped on her head architecturally. Camden Yards instantly made every single cookie cutter and doned piece of shit irrelevant and archaic from day one. The baseball universe had her eyes opened, the verdict was in, and circular stadiums were inferior for baseball. It was as if Baltimore was Saul on the road to Damascus, and all at once, everything became clear. President George H.W. Bush threw out the first pitch, bouncing a ball just in front of the dish that used to be at uh, Memorial Stadium. President Bush would later blame it on the 45-pound bulletproof vest the Secret Service made him wear that day. And when I read that, I couldn't help but think about that perfect pitch as sun thrill at the 2001 World Series almost 10 years later while wearing the vest in Yankee Stadium. H.W. Uh, was for sure the better ball player. Arguably the greatest ball playing commander-in-chief ever. But W probably has the best first pitch ever. Especially considering uh, the post-911 backstory. But, again, I digress. A crowd of 44,568 showed up for that first game. For the record... I was not inside the stadium that day. I was outside the gates that day selling baseball encyclopedias for $20 a pop, and I completely sold out. I'm out in the streets hustling like Rick Ross, the boss. <laughs> Maybach music. Like 20 cases with 8 books in a case. People were in such a celebratory mood Coming out of the stadium that day, especially after the shutout win and the ballpark's debut, Rick Sutcliffe, who you heard at the beginning of the program, he started for the Orioles that day, stymied that powerful Indians lineup 2 to nothing. The first bat of the game was Kenny Lawton, and I can't tell you how many Baltimore homes and bars that I've been inside of that had that painting of Lawton as the first batter. Paul Sorrento would get the first hit at Camden Yards, and two days later, in the first night game, which I did attend, Paul Sorrento hit the first dong at Camden Yards. And I can still see Brady Anderson diving over those new short walls out there in left field, uh, trying to bring that historic hit back. The first Orioles hit was Glenn Davis, which, my God, I just got a deuce chill from counting how the Orioles traded Kurt Schilling, Steve Finley, and Pete Harness for that dude. Easily the worst trade in Orioles history. Easily. The first run at Camden Yards was scored by Sam Horn, who was driven in by catcher Chris Hoyles and his RBI double. Uh, Billy Rimkin would have a suicide squeeze later, tackle on another run later in that game. It was the first shutout thrown at Kim Yards, and the game took two hours and two minutes to complete. They didn't need big bases, ghost runners, or pitch clocks to make that happen. Hollywood took notice as well that August. Uh, fans packed Oriole Park as extras in the filming of the movie Dave, where Kevin Klein plays the POTUS, throwing out a ceremonial first pitch in the, uh, the yard. A few years later, Camden Yards and the citizens of Baltimore would again be Hollywood extras in the movie Major League Two, as Camden Yards was the home crib for the Indians in that movie. After the very first game, the baseball universe lauded the new ballpark. 
The New York Times had the headline, Field of Dreams comes true in Baltimore, splashed across our newspaper. In places like the mausoleum in Oakland, Alameda, the seats half circle the foul lines while Camden Yards, it kind of nuzzles right up against them. The multi-sport A's crib has a vast expanse of foul ground even to this day. At Orioles Park, the foul ground is scarce and fans get a lot of balls that drift out of play now. The wall height before the yard saw uh, uniformity smothering these fences in the outfield that slightly curved symmetrically in the outfield of these multi-purpose stadiums. Well, Camden saw an outfield wall that was 7 foot high from left field to center field with a 25 foot high wall and an in-play out-of-town scoreboard and right. The wall was made 333 feet from home plate. 364 feet to the power alleys of left center field, which has always made Orioles pitchers vulnerable to AL sluggers. From the left center field power alley, just left of center, it measured 410 feet. Then there's a sharp right angle, which technically is dead center. And that's 400 feet. Still more angle, 373 feet in the right center field power alleys before it drops off the shelf at 318 down the right field line atop that 25-foot uh, wall. Cammy Yards was built for offense, particularly right-handed sluggers and left-handed straight pull hitters. With the lower walls, then pre-Camden era, it became customary to see Mike Devereaux and Brady Anderson leap in the stands for would-be home runs during the first couple of their years together at Camden. And, side note, the Orioles have had quite a few fan favorites play in the outfield of Camden Yards. At one point, Adam Jones and Nick Markakis were about as loved and cherished and Baltimore lore as any Orioles have ever been. With AJ in center and Cakes patrolling right field, it became customary to see those two in the outfield with the Camden Warehouse running behind them along uh, Utah Street. The two were like, you know, this comfort for me in the midst of chaotic mediocrity. And eventually those two would lead the birds back to respectability when Buck Showalter rode into town with uh, Buck pushing buttons at number 21, Nick Markakis, and number 10, Adam Jones, as team leaders, holding teammates accountable and leading by example. That area that they roamed became known as 2110 Utah Street. And I always love that name. I still call it that to this day, but I think I'm in the m- minority on that one. The Orioles sold out eight of their first 23 home games, which wasn't unusual considering how cold, wet, and uncomfortable April can be in Baltimore. But after the weather broke, the Orioles sold out the last 59 home dates of the season. The Orioles set attendance records in 1991, while at Memorial Stadium, when almost 2.6 million people showed up that year to watch the Birds in their first year at Camden Yards in 1992, they smashed that record as 3.6 million Orioles fans and baseball fans alike crashed the turnstiles. It is imperative that I mention that the Orioles... In 2021, they made alterations to their left field dimensions after the 2021 season. From the time the park opened in 1992 to 2021, Camden Yards has, uh, well, look, 
and surrendered. How many home runs here? I had it written down. Let me see here. Here it is. Uh, from 1992 to 2021, Kimmy Yards has surrendered 5,591 home runs, which is the most among the nine stadiums that were open during that period. That 364-foot power alley on left field was always a problem from day one. But, to be fair, the mediocre Orioles pitching, it certainly didn't help the situation all those years. So, the Orioles removed about a 1,000 seats in left field as part of a major renovation project to bring some balance to the park. The left field corner still remains at its original distance of 333 down the line, but the fence then, the fence then shoots out another 51 feet to 384 feet, just right of the foul pole. And the left center field power alley, that was always a problem, it's now 398 feet. While it certainly had a positive impact on the 2022 Orioles pitching staff, the new dimensions had opponents and some Orioles batters shaking their heads as they jog back to the dugout, a victim of a long fly out. I personally am a fan of the new walls. Too many times in the past 31 years, I've seen the Yankees and Red Sox bludgeon the Orioles to death with cheap home runs to left. However, I do think the wall had an adverse effect on my dude Brian Mountcastle last year, as many times... Uh, I saw his head fly out during these swings because he's literally gripping and ripping from his heels. So I think our young hitters will have to do a better job at adjusting their home swing. But the bottom line is balls just don't fly out of that park and left field anymore. And that should give Southpaws throughout the league reason to take pause and now consider Baltimore a legitimate destination spot. Not only are the dimensions deeper, but the fence is now higher, going from its original 7 feet to upwards of 13 and a half feet. Now, it's now known affectionately as the Great Wall of Baltimore. Uh, Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees was angry after flying out to deep left field last year, calling the new dimensions ridiculous. And he termed that the, the setup uh, was, should be called Build-A-Park. He eventually would become one of those opponents to conquer the Great Wall last season. But I still smile when I hear him whine about our dimensions. Wah! Wah, fucking wah! Baltimore changed their dimensions! Wah! Build a park! Wah! Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a fan of Judge. I've been a fan since he was in the minors. But, you know, wah! Wah, fucking wah! Stop crying, you big donkey. Again, totally, not a hater, but crying about what your opponent is doing to their crib, that's weak sauce, and that's a frustrated, frustrated tap out in my eyes. You just tapped out, bro. <laughs> Cal Ripken Jr., who hit 85 of his 430 home runs in Camden, hit his 278th home run as a shortstop on July 15, 1993, passing Ernie Banks for the most ever by a shortstop. The team had a seat painted orange to commemorate the record-breaking blast in left field. But with these new dimensions in left, Michael Elias, GM, had to call Junior and tell him that the seat would have to be moved since the field would be where the seat once sat. Always the consummate Oriole, Junior chuckled and told Elias he totally understood. And there is one more orange seat in that stadium, and I'll, I'll cover that in a bit. 
The truth is, Memorial Stadium was probably just as friendly as a hitter's park as Camden Yards. In some ways, you can make a case Memorial Stadium was more hitter-friendly than Memorial Park. For example, it was 309 feet down the lines at Memorial Stadium. If you hit a line drive shot down the lines at Memorial Stadium, there's a really good chance that that ball stays fair at 309 feet. Now, if you hit that same ball, line drive shot, down the 330-foot left field line at Camden, it has more distance to hold foul. So, stadiums give and stadiums take. And I noticed my patterns changed once I became acclimated with Camden Yards. A natural phenomenon occurred during the first four or five years. I would leave my seat and I might never return. Camden Yards had so much to see. I would literally walk around the park, watch the game from different angles, learn so much about baseball in Baltimore. I would walk laps around that park while the game was being played in the early years. I'd take a lap around the warehouse, my face pressed against a window, adjusting my eyes to see what's going on. I'd walk around and watch the game from various heights and angles and you'd look out on the city and you'd see people pull over on 95 over to the shoulder shoulder to simply gaze at this building. Like, you know, it's the Vatican or the Holy Shrine of Mecca. More than 30,000 parking spaces were available in secure garages. And open lots within walking distance. The Metro and Light Rail were steadily bringing fans to the game. The water taxis at the Inner Harbor brought the partygoers from Bell's Point to the real party in Camden Yards. And when you enter Camden Yards, it's, it's through wrought iron gates and arch portals, much like Shy Park. An arch red brick facade mimicked old Comiskey Park. That field was uh, triple-tiered like Yankee Stadium. The center field scoreboard was massive and state-of-the-art modern with uh, ivy cascading up the batter's eye. Uh, You know, that's straight out of the Wrigley Field playbook. Unfortunately, that ivy, it became unrolling. It it literally began eating up everything in its path, and they would eventually have to get rid of it. The right field scoreboard that remained Uh, Reminded the old-timers of Carl Perillo at Evans Field playing caroms. On top of that scoreboard is the standing room only, and that's where some of the best parties are. Behind the standing room only is a wrought iron gate and the longest brick building on the East Coast. The 1,016-foot-long by 51-foot-wide B&O Railroad Warehouse built between 1898 and 1905. It holds about 430,000 square feet of space. And some actually wanted to tear this piece of history down, which I always thought was you know ridiculous to even consider. Granted, it was... You know, it was really run down before Camden Yards was built. My friends and I would go down there, smash parking meters, and steal the chains back in the day. But instead of tearing it down, they refurbished it. They made it a prominent feature of the park. And I love it. I love her history. I love her grand presence. When you sit in the park and look at her, she symbolizes strength and unyielding presence. She ain't going nowhere. She's part of the show. The warehouse sits about 60 feet behind the right field wall. From its closest point behind the right field foul pole, the warehouse sits at 439 feet. And sometimes... I have to doubt all these crazy home run distances I see. All these, uh, you know, crazy-ass mathematical stats, these crazy-ass bombs, but not once in 31 years has someone sent in 439 feet to right field at Camden Yards and touched that warehouse at a game. 
Ken Griffey Jr. is the only one to touch the B&O station, and that was during a home run derby in 1993, a blast that measured at 468 feet. The spot was marked, and there is also a baseball-sized and shaped plaque on the warehouse uh, wall that marks that blast. In fact, um, if you walk down Utah Street along the warehouse inside the stadium, you will see many of these plaques on the ground as any ball hit on Utah Street, friend or foe, is marked and commemorated. Uh, even though she has yet to be touched inappropriately during a game, the bottom floor of the warehouse is lined with 63 shatterproof windows and they're just waiting for Adley Rockstar to put them to the test. In 1781, French General Comte de Rochambeau and thousands of French soldiers camped on that very spot before invading Yorktown. Abraham Lincoln, who I told you on the President's uh, Baseball Show, I did a couple months back, he played baseball where the Capitol Lipsis now stands. He often came through Camden Station on many occasions, including the journey that took him to Spring, uh, took him from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington for his 1861 inauguration, and it was also a stop along the way after that fateful night in Ford's Theater for his burial in Springfield in 1865. Uh, that warehouse is now used in many various ways by the Orioles. There's a five-star dining on top of, on the top floor. Various gifts, shops, bars, and eateries throughout the warehouse. Camden Yards consists of a three-tiered grandstand that stretches from behind home plate down the left field line, around the foul poles, uh, and down the first base line. All the seats have that throwback green color. I'm sorry, I got lost here. Uh, all those seats, they're all green. Um, and I told you that uh, they had to move that Calvertkin Jr. seat that they painted orange because of the new uh, dimensions in left field and the Great Wall of Baltimore. Uh, the other orange seat, it sits in right center field, and it marks Eddie Murray's 500th dinger, a game that I did attend. He hit it one year to the day, after Cal broke Lou Gehrig's consecutive game streak of 2,131 games in a row. We spoke all about the Ripken streak in our Death Taxes Cal Ripken Jr. show. If you haven't heard that show yet, go check it out wherever you listen to your pods or stop on my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to hear the Ripken show or any of the other shows in my Vault of Archives. So, I'm not going to cover the streak here. Uh, other than to say the warehouse was a major component of that streak as the Orioles would switch the consecutive, consecutive game numbers uh, after the game was deemed official. And I had a chance to see quite a few of those games leading up to that game breaker and the changing of numbers for Cal. Uh, it was truly special. It was like Baltimore at its m- most innocent. Uh, celebrating a man who, like the majority of us Baltimoreans, all we do is we get up every day and we go to work. Now, what a unique celebration. And I talk about that on the Ripken Show. So you can go check it out there. Instead, I do want to touch on the Eddie Murray 500th home run on this week's show. In fact, why don't I just let Eddie tell you all about that moment? For the Orioles, 
batting six, the designated hitter, number 33, Eddie Murray. I came home off the road trip and started to struggle a little bit, but the first time I came up, all of a sudden I saw a sea of orange. Look at this, all these orange Eddie signs. And I jumped out of the box, and everybody's holding up these signs with my name on them. And I'm going, oh no. I think I could do this on call. If you threw a pitch at me, it was amazing how I hit him on Zen. And that's what pretty much happened in that 83 playoff game. They were getting a little upset with us. You can just feel the bad blood between these two clubs. So the next game they hit with. That was it. I said, there'd be, you know, there wasn't going to be any more of that. You know, there were things that would kind of tick me off and, and you really hang on that this was going to be that next pitch. But having a ball thrown at you, it made me feel I had a real good idea what this next pitch should be. You know, it was just how I thought.
Oh, man, I, I love me some Eddie Murray. I know Earl Weaver loved him some Eddie Murray, but I love me some Eddie Murray, too. Uh, a decade, I gotta get going, man. We're, we're really putting in some time on this one. A decade after leaving Memorial Stadium, Rip retired, leaving behind that house the Cal built into the hands of the new era Orioles. The Orioles honored his father, Cal Sr., with a plaque in the dugout memorializing his 36 years of devotion to the club. In August of 2007, the Orioles performed before their 50 millionth fan quicker than any other ballpark in baseball history. And all these 30 years later, I'm still motivated every spring for baseball to start. And it's in a large part uh, because of Camden Yards and, you know, her magnificence, her glory. And I told you how in the beginning during a build, I was always mumbling Shakespeare to myself, what's past is prologue. Now, all these years later, the Orioles fan, uh, the, the Orioles fan has moved into the oratory skills of Winston Churchill, who said in the beginning, we shape our buildings, but afterwards, our buildings shape us. Truer words have never been spoken. Thankfully, I got tickets to the Orioles versus Red Sox series in April at Camden Yards. Um, I can't wait. Uh, it's my first return to the yards since 2011. Uh, wow. I mean, going on 12 years. Jesus, it's been way too long for a guy who lived literally six blocks up North Utah Street and who went to an average of 35 to 40 games a year. It's been way too long. I actually ordered tickets during the preseason in 2015 for that White Sox series that would get played with no one in the park because of the Freddie Gray civil unrest that year. Uh, that was weird. So I didn't get to see them that year. Hopefully nothing crazy will go down this year that would prevent me from watching a said Mully, Gunner, Mountcastle, and of course my favorite player in the game, not named Otani, Mr. Adley Rockstar. So, yeah, fingers crossed. Hopefully nothing crazy goes down, but you never know. It's Baltimore. The citizens are restless, and the local government and police department are as corrupt as fuck. Yeah, I said it. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. And, folks, that's going to be where we end the story of Oriole Park to Camden Yards this week. Before I wrap this up, uh, MOB, listen up. It's time for Baltimore to have another All-Star game. It's going to 30 years. And Pittsburgh has had three since we had one. I know you want to recognize all these new cribs that pop up every year. I'm sure Texas is going to get another one because they got another, uh, you know, they had an All-Star for their last crib. They got an All-Star for this one. You know, the Braves and the Rangers, they make, you know, stadiums 15 years apart and they get, they get an All-Star game for that shit. It's going on 30 years. I know you want to recognize all these cribs that pop up new every year, but it's time to re-recognize the one that started it all. Oriole Park and Camden Yards, bitch. Recognize, motherfuckers. I want to hear two things during the 2023 season. One, the Orioles have signed a new lease to remain at Camden Yards and in Baltimore. And two, Camden Yards is scheduled to have an all-star game soon in the near future. Get it done. John Angelos, get it done. Get it done, Fred Manfro. And look, I hope you guys enjoy hearing the history of Camden Yards as much as I enjoyed delivering it to you, uh, telling you the story. There are so many books out there on Camden Yards. My personal favorite is Men at Work by DC-based writer George Will. 
There are all kinds of videos on YouTube to pique your camping yard's curiosity. And there really is no shortage of material to learn about this ground-breaking ball yard. So, with the history of Oriental Park at camping yards done and getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, I chop <laughs> the handle of our baseball hydro only to see two more baseball topics growing its place next week. I will be taking you on a deep dive into the life of my good friend, J.R. Richard, who passed away about a year ago. Uh, He was a baseball shooting star who lit up the baseball universe with his exploits and was one of the biggest, baddest lions in the fucking jungle, only to see his magnificent career reduced to rubble after a career any stroke changed his life forever. I truly miss you, JR. I, I think about you a lot. And next week, I'm going to honor you right here at BKP. And I hope to see all of you here. Check us out on Instagram and YouTube at Backwards K Pod. Our Twitter handle is at back underscore K underscore podcast. Email the show backwardskpod at gmail.com. The show website is diamondsnakejake.podbean.com or you can always find me at the Facebook group page the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Thank you for stopping by. I'll promise to try to be better next week. Parents, if you see your kid and they're looking antsy, got their nose in a bone eating junk food, looking bored AF, by all means, Take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Linderbrand told me uh, in our one-on-one in the archives, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, Seamheads. Peace.